Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hello and welcome to the Voice of Reason podcast. I'm your host, Benjamin Boyce, and today's guest is Isabella, who runs Whose Body Is It?, which is a webpage where she uh, collates information about birth, the process of birth. She's a birthing support professional, which I think I just made up. She also runs a YouTube channel called Whose Body Is It?, which discusses the ways in which gender ideology is infiltrating the ways in which women are allowed to speak about one another, relate to one another, relate to their bodies, and therefore understand how bodies operate, specifically and especially around the miraculous event of birth giving. Uh, This particular conversation, we get into birth and birthing communities and radical feminism and gender ideology. And it was rather fun because Isabella is fun to talk to. So I should get out of the way. But before I do, I would like to say that my content is found not only on YouTube, but across the web on odyssey.com, O-D-Y-S-E-E.com, also on BitChute. If you are so inclined to distribute your attention across different platforms in order to not give one company or one website a hegemony on what kind of information is allowed to be shared, do check out these alternative tech websites and subscribe to your your favorite creators there and abroad. I think that's a good enough spiel. So without further ado, here is Isabella. What about you? Are you doing a lot of uh, virtual birthing uh, remotely? (laughs) You know, I, so I do have a virtual practice, but actually my virtual business has totally um, been dominated by um, the trans stuff. Actually, I've, I've built a a okay. private online community and an eight-week um, program for women who are questioning the tenets of liberal feminism. Oh, okay. Okay. Yeah. Wait. So you're going from the womb into this other domain of uh, kind of ideology then. Yeah. Yeah. Like unpacking, a lot of unpacking. I still serve. So, you know, I'll share, when, you know, when we get started, but the, we're, uh, uh, when oh, do you recording start? now? We're always recording. Okay, great. Yeah, I'll just get into it. Um, so, <laughs> <laughs> sorry. No, it's okay. Uh, about thirty percent of my thirty uh, percent of people just start uh, going right right oh, away. Yeah, so you, you never know. So I just press play. No, I really appreciate that. I've had that issue when speaking with people where I'm like, oh, no, 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 like, this is the good stuff. And then I'll be like, yeah, yeah. I'm stopping the recording now. And then all this other yeah. stuff will come up. And I'll be like, wait, can you please repeat that? Because like, that was gold that that we need to share. Yeah. Um, so, so I am still serving women in person um, in my community. Um, I hold uh, monthly village prenatals. So the women in my community who are pregnant come to my home and we sit in circle. Um, and that is a community offering. That's not something I, I charge for. And it fills me up, I think, just as it fills up the other women. And so, um, yeah, I, I moved from a blue state to a red state uh, during lockdown. And um, 
I was surprised actually that, you know, to kind of learn that these pregnant women who I was just meeting for the first time had been in complete isolation um, since about March. And, and this was, you know, they really started building um, in attendance just a couple months ago. And so a lot of the women coming would just say, wow, I, I haven't like sat in circle with women, maybe in my, my entire life ever, this is the first time. And then let alone being pregnant, you know, kind of adding that other dimension of, of transformation and and looking for connection in that sense. So my in-person, I do have a virtual business. Um, I also do virtual, um, uh, birth planning and then postpartum, um, trauma debriefs and birth trauma debriefs. Mm -hmm. And so I do have that virtual practice, but, um, the, the in-person stuff like keeps me whole. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> It keeps absolutely. me human. Yeah. And yeah. It, it's funny. I was talking to a friend the other day about getting relief, like in this time and how, how people relax and kind of like take a break from thinking about all the madness that kind of has ensued. And, and I thought about, um, the, you know, the two births that I attended during this time, um, and, you know, even just from, from March till now, which is the fewest that I've ever attended in one year since I've been doing birth work. And and it was like three days, four days of just time distortion of being in this like alternate reality when you're serving someone at a birth, like everything turns off. Right. And and to be like a, a, a woman in full presence for another woman, I think that's essential right? Like I can't be somewhere else. I have to be right there. And it's been kind of a gift, um, to be in service in those ways during this time to have that space of total like devotion, um, and concentration and focus and service. Um, anyway, I was just thinking about that, that like, wow, I noticed like I, I feel so good in, in that space. And like, obviously it's because I love supporting women and it was a chance to kind of like be somewhere else Mm -hmm. in this, in this like time warp distorted bubble that, that happens in labor land. Yeah. There's nothing quite as embodied as, uh, giving birth and being born, I suppose. So uh, that kind of really changes or shifts the, uh, concentration from, this virtual reality that we've really installed into our heads and installed ourselves into that going out of that into reality as it is probably most real. Uh, I don't think there's anything more real aside death than birth. And uh, birth is uh, totally different from death because you have a mother and a baby participating in that or several babies and then all the attendants around that. So it's just a completely different reality that my I myself have never had to imagine or never really ventured into imagining other than metaphorically as like an artiste or something like that and straining over some text or something like that, which is <laughs> totally different than what you're actually involved in. How did you get into that? Did you, you, you had a baby one day and you're like, oh, this is a good idea. I'm going to go help other people. No, no, I, I don't have a baby, Benjamin. Um, like I'm a sorry, real that baby. Was offensive, yeah. <laughs> I end end call right now. Um, <laughs> no, I. What it's funny you that you that? say. Yeah, yeah. It's funny that you bring up the artist thing. It's so I. I was like the art girl. 
Like I was on the path to being the artist, getting the MFA, getting the adjunct teaching position. Like that was my dream for so long. And, um, I got out of, you know, I graduated from a conservatory from an art school, um, finding myself needing money. And so I, I gravitated towards childcare mm. and I did a lot of that. So that was my entry into like serving families. May I ask, is this as a au pair or as a preschool, uh, teacher, director? As a babysitter. Yeah. Okay. Just as a babysitter, yeah. Um, I, I worked with, you know, infants and also kids maybe up to like age four to six. Um, and, you know, some of the jobs that I did would be overnights as well. So I guess not quite no pair, but um, I remember spending a weekend with two children under the age of four by myself and being like, whoa, <laughs> whoa, like I love yeah. these kids and like, whoa, this is 24 seven shit, you know? Yeah. Um, so. And shit know, so, is not entirely uh, metaphorical itself. No, no, it's quite, <laughs> I, I mean it quite literally. Yes. Puke shit, all of it. Yeah. And, um, and beauty and direct impact. And so, you know, I, I, re I remember just, you know, simultaneously I had gallery internships and catering jobs and like assistant work. And I was, a, I remember being an assistant for a prop stylist and just feeling like this is soulless stuff. Like, look at all this waste and like every catalog is the same. And she was like a surgeon, you know, like positioning the lipstick just perfectly. And I was sitting there like for hours trying to get the perfect swirl, you know, for the perfect shot of the lotion that costs like $300. And wow. I just remember feeling like totally going into this like spiral of like, Oh my God, like I am so disposable. And like, I, I don't want to feel this way in, in everything that I do. So childcare wasn't ended up, you know, wasn't where I ended up. Uh, cause I realized that actually my genius wasn't working with children necessarily, but it was working with women and working with mothers. Hmm. And so I really, I felt that more so, you know, even with the babysitting, there ended up being a lot of just sisterly support for the mothers and becoming friends with the mothers and 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 kind of seeing how there was such a lack of that, uh, in, at least in the area where I was serving women, which was in New York City. Okay. Um, so, yeah. yeah, just needed money, gravitated towards women and mothers, always loved working with babies. And then it just got to a point where I was like, well, what's next? You know, and I had heard yeah. about this postpartum doula thing. And honestly, like, to be totally honest, I was like, you know, I want to make some money. Like, what's next? Like, oh, I can turn this into a career. That'd be awesome. So in 2016, I signed up for a, a birth and postpartum doula training. And at the time, I couldn't find a training that was just postpartum. And so I thought, oh, okay, I'll just add the birth on in there. And, you know, that'll just be the thing I'll have to get out of the way and do the three certifying births to get the certification. And but I really wasn't even interested in birth. Um, other than the fact that I had heard that there was, you know, injustice happening um, within obstetric birth and that women were being violated and that C-sections were on the rise. And so I, I had an awareness that there was something wrong, um, but I didn't think that was going to be like my lane. Okay. So I get to this birth doula training in, in 2016 and... Um, before we even got into what physiologic birth is, 
what hormones are at play when a mother is pregnant and gives birth and postpartum, uh, before we even got into the advocacy element of, of being present at births in the system. And when I say in the system, I mean in the obstetric, modern obstetric birth system. So in hospitals, in birthing centers, and then at home with licensed midwives. Um, so before we even got into that, um, there was the kind of cultural competency segment of the training, which was that we no longer use the words woman and mother. Um, we say birthing people, birthing person, chest feeder. And then later I was introduced to uh, menstruating human and uterus haver and all those things. Um, and so this was in Brooklyn and New York City. And, and it was funny because I remember them talking about some some kind of um, statement that had been written to uh, the midwives of North America. Hmm. I don't know if you know Mary Lou Singleton, um, no. but she's a, a radical midwife and just uh, a, <laughs> a radical midwife. <laughs> yeah, Sorry. yeah. I mean, she actually—I don't—I don't know that she practices midwifery primarily anymore, but but she's a, a family. Uh, nurse practitioner, I believe as well. So she, she works with, with families. She's an incredible woman. And she and a couple other midwives wrote this statement to the North uh, America Midwives Alliance, um, basically saying like this birthing person stuff has to stop. Like this is harmful. Um, this is women's work. Okay. Why? Why is that language harmful? Why is it considered dehumanizing why is the word woman superior to the word the the construct birthing people so the term birthing people implies that that women aren't the only human species that that, that gives birth right oh. birthing people right allows makes space for someone to say i'm a man and i give birth okay Right, which is just factually inaccurate. So it, okay. it not right. So like we know, you and I know that that men don't give birth. Women who identify as men also know that men don't give birth. Right. Mm -hmm. So when we're seeing photos of women who have taken testosterone, who have beards, who have had um, double mastectomies, um, in birthing tubs, giving birth to their babies. Um, we know that that's only possible because they're women. Yes. Okay. It's not some kind of magical, miraculous event that someone was born with the uterus <laughs> okay. and breasts, and then also miraculously with a beard yeah. You know, like it's not some kind of third sex scenario. So, so, so in the kind of birthing person um, space, you know, language, ideology, um, women are being asked to play pretend, right? To, to pretend that that's not a woman, to make a sacrifice um, for someone else's comfort of their kind of dysphoria, right? Making space for their dysphoria. Right, their belief that they're stuck in the wrong body or um, have some kind of congenital defect, 
which is actually just healthy breast tissue, you know, so th things like that. So, um, and Mary Lou really outlines this really clearly. Um, so I want to credit her for this, but, but not only is it just factually untrue, but it gives power to our oppressor class to say that men give birth, right? So it's ironic because all these women who are in this birth doula training are there because they want to change the world. They want to make things better for women, right? Specifically in birth. And we're only in this position because natural birth and um, traditional midwifery was systematically taken away from women, right? Women didn't get together and say, hey, you know what, this birth thing, men, men in technology, they just know how to do it better. You know, it didn't work like that. So we're in this predicament where where women are fighting for basic um, rights of how to birth, when they want to birth, all these things. Because we have a distinct oppressor class who took these things away from women, like traditionally women healers, midwives, and so on, like the witches. So to say that then this thing that we can do, that only we have the capacity to do, is now something that men can claim mm -hmm. is totally bonkers. Um, I, it, it feels like to me that oppressor class is not entirely accurate, that casting modern medicine as purely oppressive, uh, kind of, it's not accurate. I, I, I think that we can hold space to the damage it did to the community around birth and the processes of birth and the wisdom and the tradition that was embedded in, uh, in birthing up until that time. Uh, you can see that technology, the technology mindset, stripped many things from culture and now we're in the process of rebalancing that uh, because if if we cast Western technology or technology itself as oppressive, then what happens with all the good things that it gave us is is uh, the different you know painkiller medicines or you know within reason are there not good things that came from that but it was just too far. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I, I I absolutely agree, and and I I'm speaking specifically only about what I know, and that is the use of pharmaceuticals and intervention in a natural, normal, biological process, birth. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Right. So, so, you know, the, the, uh, the, um, the access to opiates, you know, in birth to narcotics in the birth process, um, you know, if, if we were seeing like stellar birth outcomes, mm. if like the U S had like a stellar record and like all these mothers were like supported and happy and thriving and like childhood, you know, um, disease uh, and challenges were like on the decline. I'd be like, hey, I guess we're doing something right. But that's that's not the case. Right. The U.S. has um, out of industrialized countries in the world, the, the U.S. has one of the worst, um, mm -hmm. not only maternal death rates, but infant mortality rates. And so, you know, that's only, you know, that's kind of why I was brought to this work too, when I mm -hmm. learned about just statistically what was happening to mothers and babies. And mm -hmm. I think even without knowing those stats, you know, I mean, I've, I've served about a hundred women in their births and without even knowing those, those stats, it's, it's just anecdotally obvious, you know, when you look at 
you know, the rate of C-section and intervention and postpartum depression and, and all these things and, and struggles to breastfeed, you know, it's, hmm. it's, um, hmm. it's tricky. And so certainly, absolutely, you know, there, there's a time and a place for a surgical birth. Um, well, I'm, I'm just saying, even yeah. even up to including just the knowledge that bacteria has a certain uh, kind of influence on us. There, there's certain things from science that that you don't want to throw away. You know, the baby out with the bathwater kind of situation. But I, I don't want to. I don't want to uh, derail the conversation. I, I was thinking. I'm trying to formulate the meaning of the word "woman." Has come to be not only because of stereotypes and, and the negative a- attributes that, uh, you know, society has put on it and all the, all those roles that have been oppressive to women, but positively, there's this positive side of being a woman. And that has to do with a lot of language that you are using when you're describing your work. Uh, just the process of birth, uh, the process of being sisterly, the, the process of having a, a certain connection and, and emotional attenuation to one another that, that assists going through this very climactic or uh, cataclysmic uh, process. That All of that stuff is part of what makes woman woman and part of the meaning of the word woman. And when you say a birthing person, you're, you're severing all of that uh, from what you do, what you are. Yeah, I completely agree. And, and I also see it as a total function and in congruence with just the, the way that I was taught to serve women in birth at that time, mm. which was that, you know, this kind of, this kind of like words don't have real meaning or like they can mean what you want them to mean, mm-hmm. um, really extended to like natural birth. Like we were, we were instructed to not use the words natural birth. Whoa. Yeah. Why? Why was natural and why was birth uh, problematic? Were you explain? Was that explained? Um, so, you know, I really, I really see it as an instrument of the pharmaceutical industry to like want to normalize C-sections. So what, like what once started out as like cesarean awareness month, which was like education to kind of like share what cesareans were and how they worked, um, has become like a whole like really romantic glossy campaign for women to like shout their cesareans and be like, this is birth too, you know? And it's, yeah. it's so insulting cause, cause you know, I work with plenty of women who have had cesareans um, and, and then gone on to have vaginal births. I mean, they know the difference, you know, a woman knows the difference and to kind of pat her on the head and say, oh, no, honey, no, that that was natural. Don't you worry about that is, you know, that kind of reframe is incredibly damaging. Um, And and, yeah, so so things like that were coming up. And and so I think it came from a place of, you know, not wanting to shame and not wanting to judge Um, and that like everything is for everyone. Yes. Kind of thing, you know, yeah. which is, is so sad, you know, and it like, I've had a number of conversations, there's this wonderful writer named Rhea M. Riley, who I spoke to, and we got into like, the equality narrative. And how damaging this is, you know, that, that like, even when you think about like, what's happening with the sports debate of, of you know, men who identify as women wanting to compete against women in sports, it's like, because we've been pushed, I think women, liberal feminists have been pushed this equality narrative, it's almost jarring 
to kind of sit back and say, oh, whoa, like on a physical capacity, you know, in terms of strength or um, grip, like we're weaker. And it doesn't mean we're like emotionally weaker or intellectually weaker or any anything like that. It's just it is what it is. And so um, hmm. there's this reluctance I've found over and over and over to kind of see difference and then not like demonize it because because there's a like a I think a PTSD to being like well you know men are better than women kind of like thing so you know so yeah so things like that you know kind of how they talked about how they introduced trans ideology and how trans ideology played a major major role in this training and you know back to the the statement that that Mary Lou and a bunch of midwives wrote, you know, I was coming into this training um, about a year after there had been a massive kind of coup in the birth world um, and a total takeover and and really kind of um, happening from the top down. So really like the birth world following the rules of the Midwives Alliance of North America. And and Mary Lou, you know, was there. She was on the ground as this was happening. And she has retold this to me. And it was interesting talking to her because I was on the other end of my doula training, them saying to me, there was this horrible statement that all these midwives signed because they want to erase trans people and were so disappointed in them. And I was sitting there kind of aghast, just like, oh, my goodness, how mm. evil. It's weird. The Not wanting to erase women is framed as erasing this other group, right? So you're erasing women. And when you try to stop that, you're, they say, stop trying to erase this other group that we kind of have invented uh, very recently. Uh, sorry to say, but it is completely synthetic. It is, like you said, it is uh, one becomes a man, not in actuality, but cosmetically and then linguistically. That is that is the path of a female becoming a male, uh, and that's the only path that we have to do that. And and to and to try to separate that out um, without dishonoring it, even, but just to to draw a line in the sand and say no women are women. And this knowledge and this training and a lot of what we do ne- needs to have language intact in order to do that because it has a tradition and, and it, it evokes certain – I think it, it, it plays an emotional role that's very uh, important in going through this traumatic event of birth and, and uh, having a new person in your hands. To try to preserve that doesn't have to infringe on this other ideology, but this other ideology, there's something about it that wants to capture and and own the conversation. Absolutely. I mean, it is a, it is a total process of, of complete domination, which is, is total, totally in conflict with the idea that these people are marginalized. Hmm. Mm-hmm. Like, how could it be true that my doula training and the organization itself talks more about trans ideology and inclusivity more than they do about preserving the importance of physiologic birth and Hmm. protecting women and children. Like, you know, it's, it's, it's so bizarre. And it it took me a few years to kind of wrap my head around that because I had such a, you know, before I, I really got clarity over what was happening on like a larger scale and what was happening with, um, uh, just the market of sex reassignment surgeries and all of that, you know, the money stuff, 
I just, I didn't go there for so long because a part of me thought that there was this small, oppressed, sad population that needed my protection. And if I were to utter the words woman and mother, I would jeopardize their safety. I would jeopardize their well-being and, and, and nobody wants to be the bigot. You know, mm-hmm. nobody wants to be that person. And so I think, yeah. What was, uh, what were some of the, uh, moments, the beginning moments, the first moments where you started to question that or, or something that kind of hit you and you're like, wait, the cognitive dissonance kind of started to become clear. Benjamin, I had so many peaks. Um, my, <laughs> I peaked so many times. Uh, I'm still, sometimes I think I'm still peaking, you know, hmm. um, but my, my, one of my, my first peak trans moment was, um, so as an extension of like kind of my birth work and that started to explode, I started to work with women who were coming off hormonal birth control okay. and learning more about like the, the dangers of, of hormonal birth control, long-term, short-term effects, um, the history of hormonal birth control, um, like this whole, um, birth control, hormonal birth control is like liberation kind of narrative that I grew up with, you know, supporting Planned Parenthood. And once I applied to be a canvasser for Planned Parenthood, like kind of being coming out of that space, um, I started just looking at just like hormones and the effect on women's body and women's health and the lack of research um, around yeah. women's issues like endometriosis and such. And so... What's that um, just for... Uh, yeah, so endometriosis. Yeah. So endometriosis is, is where the, the lining of the uterus, uh, the endometrium starts to grow outside of the uterus. And so it can oh, okay. kind of form small tumors and it result can result in a lot of pelvic pain. Um, and, uh, it's, you know, it's, it's, ca- it's classified as a kind of reproductive issue and then also sometimes as a kind of autoimmune issue, but it results in inflammation and, um, and it's that quite, can be caused be by serious. hormone, hormone, uh, hormonal birth control. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. And interestingly enough, the conventional approach to treating endometriosis is a drug called Lupron, which is a puberty blocker. Okay. Right. And it ceases estrogen production, which is um, what's supposedly going to stop the endometriosis, but has its own long-term effects. And, you know, there, there are groups of women, um, not detransitioned women, but women who have come off Lupron, um, who are in their early twenties, mid twenties, uh, whose teeth are falling out okay. because it affects bone density. And this is the same drug that's given to children, um, to stop puberty. So, yes. So things like that started to pop up. And I, and I just thought like the the women that I was working with were, they were all using the kind of menstruating human language. And it struck me that there was such an intense criticism of hormonal birth control being prescribed to healthy women, right? So what other case are like healthy people being prescribed pharmaceutical drugs, right? Most people don't even think of hormonal birth control as a pharmaceutical. It's like candy, you know, everyone has it. The candy of liberation. The candy of liberation. Exactly. It comes in a little makeup pouch, you know, um, it has like a status kind of thing going for it. But actually interesting, you know, actually hormonal birth control, uh, is on the decline. Usage is on the decline, at least in the U S so that's cool. But, um, so So you were studying that or you were considering that and 
how did that peak you? So, so the friends I was teaching with were, were affirming trans ideology. They were affirming women to take synthetic hormones if they identified as trans, like no questions asked. And like to even question like a woman who had cut off her breasts and, you know, taking testosterone from years, then having a baby to like question, you know, what the effects of that long-term testosterone would be on the child was like, no, 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 that's, that's not your business. You don't go there. Like, that's not something you ask a question about. And so that was the first time where I was like, well, how can we be kind of looking at this part of, of, um, pharmaceuticals being prescribed to women and not this part? Mm -hmm. So it's, it's, uh, you're fighting against people identifying as barren, but not people identifying as men in a way, like, like the identity, there's just a one, one set, the same stuff is okay in one situation, but not okay in another situation when it's still an operative of people's choice or people wanting to, uh, live a certain way or a certain life. Yeah. And, and I, yeah, and it's interesting cause it's the same could be the same. It's so funny how like the, like even the word transition, right? Like when, when young women who identify as men see their tr transition as complete, it usually means that they've had a hysterectomy. Um, now we would never like look at a 60 year old woman after her hysterectomy and say, your transition is complete. You know, it would be absurd. Um, hmm. uh, and also even with that, you know, they're, they're, you know, the, the kind of the medical model for just treating reproductive health issues typically is to just take the organ out. Yeah. Right. Um, but that isn't the case for men. And so, um, the idea of just thinking about that, that these women were having body issues and dysphoria, which is really familiar to a lot of women, including myself, and that the solution would be to just like pluck out organs, um, was kind of like mind blowing for me. Huh? To, so that, I, yeah. California just recently is attempting to redefine breast tissue as abnormal if this mental condition called gender dysphoria declares it as abnormal. This one condition, gender dysphoria, is given the right to redefine what reality is, what normality is. It's given a completely different status than any other uh, psychological distress or mental condition. And even we, we probably couldn't even call it a mental condition because it's so sacred. It's redefining the world. It's very odd that this one thing has so much power. I mean, yeah, when I saw that I was freaking horrified, I think the language was like congenital defect. Yeah. Yeah. A breast is a congenital defect because of gender dysphoria. I mean, the kind of grooming Okay, another peak that I had was when I started learning about, just not for any particular reason, but just kind of, I don't know, when you, when you, see, it, when you see women abused, you know, in a kind of um, setting where you think abuse isn't supposed to happen, like, like yeah. the birth room, I, it really opened me up to like a lot of things. So at one point I went down this rabbit hole of like child pornography and like how children are, are, how children are groomed for child pornography. And one of the first things that happens is um, to create a dissociation between the child and their body. So like the mind and the body. And so one way to do this is by giving the child another name. 
by saying like, okay, well, Sally, you know, lives with her parents and, you know, has a happy life. But then Jennifer, Jennifer does other things. Right. And, and so I see this process of like social transition and renaming like as essential to even like moving towards the space of like thinking that you want to have parts of your body chopped off or, or re repurposed, you know? And, um, it's, yeah, there, I just, there are so many similarities I see with, with that kind of grooming process and, Hmm. And it's so predatory, you know, I think, I think like a lot of people can see that, that it's extremely predatory, especially towards women, like this whole, you know, what I, when I started to bring up bubble up things about like my discomfort with the ideology, um, people would say to me, friends would say to me, well, you don't know because you've never experienced that. Right. And I would say, well, it's interesting you'd say that because I remember as a teenage girl, fantasizing what it would be like to slice off the, the my inner thighs hmm. so I could have a thigh gap. Oh, okay. Right? And, and, and of course, you know, like my mom would, you know, would say, well, that's ridiculous. You're never, you're not going to get liposuction. You're, you're 14 years old, you know? It, yeah. it, like, imagine the damage that could have been done to me had my mom said, you know what? You know, if I had threatened, you know, to, to harm myself if she wouldn't let me, if I, if I were to use suicide as a, as a kind of manipulation technique and, and whatnot. I mean, same for anorexia. I mean, I, I know that you, you know this, but like the, the, um, yeah, like if I were to beg my mom to call me fat when I was like 85 pounds, you know, that would, that would have been really, that I, that wasn't my experience, by the way, the, the anorexia part, but certainly the kind of desire to modify my body surgically is is not something specific to trans identified women mm -hmm. um mm -hmm. sorry trans yeah trans identified women so yeah that gender dysphoria thing is is something that um or body dysmorphia experience is something that you know a lot of my friends went through and had and what we didn't have was someone affirming us saying you know what you're right your body's wrong <laughs> Is there, uh, I mean, with the case of anorexia and what you're uh, pointing out with your own personal experience, I, it leads me to think, and I've been studying this, but I haven't actually studied it in any thorough manner, that there's some part of pubescence for women that's, uh, it's a very narrow passage and wanting to escape the body or a, a disgust with the body or a persistent uh, desire to flee the body is a part of that passage. And coming to peace with that is uh, traditionally, up until medical uh, ability to, to fiddle around with that, is, is a part of becoming mature, is a part of becoming a woman and, and becoming embodied and, and I guess, uh, in, a, in a way, uh, dealing not only with the social consequences, but the reality of, of the situation of, of being a woman and, and wanting to flee that as a part of pubescence and, and a coming of age. And in our attempt to uh, give people the most convenient life possible, the most easy life possible, we're starting to fiddle around with something that's essential to the process of becoming mature. Yeah, I, I hear what you're saying. And I, I would agree in terms of the way that I was raised that, that there, um, 
that there was discomfort, certainly. And I don't know that's inherent to being a woman. Like, I wouldn't say that that's an inherent process necessarily. But, you know, I think... It seems like a lot of people experience that or a lot of girls, teen girls experience that. Certainly. And I think we can't talk about like discomfort as a girl or as an adolescence without also talking about pedophilia. And what I mean by, and I, it's interesting because I, I didn't have this realization until a couple months ago from, from talking to a number of wise women in my circle. And, and I'll kind of outline what, how I see this to be kind of connected. Um, but, but, you know, around the age of like nine, 10, you know, right before puberty, I would say not even during puberty, um, it's quite common for women, for little girls to be sexualized. So not only by their peer group, by boys in their peer group, but by adult men, you know, and, and sometimes, you know, it, it doesn't kind of set off till, till puberty hits. Um, and the way I interpreted it as like a, a, a kind of a teenage girl was that like, oh, I must look, you know, older than I am. And that was cool, right? To like look hmm. older, yeah. to pass as like older, um, and now I see it completely differently. I, I see that that kind of harassment and sexual attraction um, actually being very specific to the fact that I was not an adult. Woman. Okay. And so, like that desire to um, escape cannot be separated from like the way that that girls are sexualized in in like modern society. So. I always, I come back to that and, and also just like have a lot more empathy, you know, when, when women tell me their stories of, um, wanting to escape and like how desperate they were to avoid those interactions. Like it, it makes, yeah. you know, it, it makes total sense. Um, and you know, it's the way that, that we're, that women are socialized to even have periods is to like, you bleed, you, you plug it up. You absorb it, you throw it out. Like there's this disconnection even, you know, with with bleeding and what that means and the kind of um, sacredness of of what that can kind of look like. So it's, you know, even with someone who doesn't experience like gender dysphoria, you know, there's a there's a disconnection there on, on multiple levels of disembodiment and disassociation. And I think what we're seeing with teenage girls is just the ex- uh, who are identifying as men. Um, is just the kind of the more extreme end of that. Of of a, you use the word sacred. I think we need to very uh, clearly define that because that has a whole bunch of associations. But uh, it seems like you're saying that this is a uh, important uh, thing to incorporate and associate with and not disassociate yourself from. Uh, and language such as, uh, or, or thinking of the menstruation as dirty or uh, bringing a, a overly strong concept of clean. I, I think that there's a proper balance between uh, dealing with that. So could you help me conceptualize something that I've never had to conceptualize? And, and I think that this is a part dealing with this. This is one step. Menstruation is one part of, of a holistic uh, kind of understanding of, of the, the very central process of being a woman and, and giving birth and, and, and so on and so forth and being a mother. Yeah. And I would, I would go even further to say that the understanding the menstrual cycle and being attuned to the cycle is also for women who don't want to have kids ever, right? It is a sign of vitality 
um, oh. as important as understanding your um, blood pressure and your heart rate and, and you know, your vital signs. It, it is a vital sign of life. Um, it is not a kind of compartment separate to the rest of the body and how it functions. Um, and so a kind of integration with the cycle, menstrual cycle, and understanding of menstrual cycle is an understanding of overall health and well-being. I like so, the, the um, concept of vitality has uh, has a lot of legs to it. Yeah. And like, you know, even thinking about like, you know, I worked with a lot of women who are just like, why do I need my cycle? What is it good for? What is it doing for me? You know, and mm. I and I think mm. like if women can kind of um, shift that perspective and it being like something that's annoying or unmanageable um, to something that is actually a clue into feeling optimal, hmm. like to feeling good, mm-hmm. like that to to kind of uncover and, and observe bio signs is a, a kind of an entrance into overall health and well-being. And again, it, it is not exclusive to wanting to get pregnant or having a baby. Yeah. Thank you for caveating that. There's also a aspect of uh, desire to transition or to become a man because of severe, uh, I don't know the cor- correct terminology, all I know is premenstrual syndrome, uh, mm-hmm. very difficult uh, feelings that women undergo. How do you think that con- reconceptualizing that or integrating that, how do you integrate something so severely uh, difficult? for certain women? How do they deal with that? How, what's the framework that you use to help them with that? So, so that is not my, like my niche, but, but I do do a lot of consulting for women in that, um, position Hmm. where I then refer to naturopathic doctors, hormonal specialists, um, integrative practitioners, acupuncturists and whatnot. But, but what, what that says to me is like a, just, you know, there's, there's something hormonally going on that's completely imbalanced. Um, And uh, that can be partially genetic. Um, I think mostly it's environmental. So the kind of toxins that we're exposed to, um, highly processed foods, uh, highly processed soy, um, foods filled with synthetic estrogens and whatnot, perfumes, pads, menstrual pads that are coated with chemicals, you know, so so it's it's everywhere and it can be super overwhelming just to be like, oh, shit, we live in this toxic world. Um, (laughs) But but um, there are there are wonderful practitioners and and books out there. You know, I would say first of all that there's, you know, there are barriers to support with this stuff because women's health is like under understudied and under researched, undervalued. Okay, and so before it's gotten, so so the project of of furthering the understanding of women's health is being impeded on by this ideology. This ideology is cutting it short, introducing a lot of complication into understanding it holistically, and then injecting a lot of uh, paths towards more synthetic uh, mm-hmm. fiddling with the female body or just bodies in general. Yeah, like, w- but way beyond a Band-Aid. You know, I would like criticize hormonal birth control as being a band-aid for someone who has a hormonal imbalance, who is experiencing painful periods, um, oh. premenstrual symptoms. Um, what it does is it, it kind of, it, it, it masks symptoms um, and it shuts off that whole vital system. It just okay. shuts it off. It says like, we don't need you until you think you want to have a baby. And then you're just going to come off the pill and you'll turn it back on. But the body doesn't always respond like that. 
you know, the body isn't this like on and off kind of robot. Um, and so that, that I was highly critical and am highly critical of because it, it doesn't address the root causes of what's happening. And it, it really masks symptoms and puts, tends to put the woman in a worse place because when she comes off that, when she takes the bandaid off, not only are the symptoms still there, but they've, they've, um, they've gotten worse. Okay. They've been waiting and growing yeah. in the shadows. Sometimes. Yeah. Yeah. And you know, it's really interesting with hormonal birth control. Um, I was on hormonal birth control for one year and I didn't have a kind of crazy experience where I like lost my mind, which ha has happened to friends of mine who they, they literally, you know, think they're going insane, um, or have low libidos or, um, gain a lot of weight. You know, my experience on hormonal birth control, you know, I, the side effects weren't super drastic other than I felt like somewhat depressed and apathetic, mm. which is pretty bad. Um, <laughs> but compared to what I had known, um, but you know, I almost, I see kind of extreme reactions to, to, to drugs like that as a gift, you know, because okay. then the likelihood of that woman staying on that drug for like five more years is, is, yeah. is unlikely. So yeah. like, so, so hormonal birth control, like, let's just call that the bandaid, you know, what we're seeing with chemicals being given to children, you know, we're talking about like sterilization. Yes. Yes. Right. Yeah, and yeah. that can happen also with, um, IUDs, for example, you know, IUDs can migrate, um, through the walls of the uterus and, and Is result that a, in hysterectomy. That's the dangly thing that's in there. <laughs> Sorry. The, the, the T shape, it's a T shape. Um, device sometimes it's it's hormonal sometimes it's um, oh, okay. its main function is copper um, but you know we we already hmm. we, we already are playing with fire when we're talking about you know medical devices in women's in healthy women's wombs you know mm -hmm. it's already it's already something to contend with um, but this this kind of medical market for women who are identifying as men is like a whole different ball game I mean this is this is attacking not only like reproductive function and, and well-being, but like just fundamentally like what it is to be like a human. Yes. And, and our understanding of that. And like, I, um, like was, uh, explored with my interview with Stephanie Davies array, uh, the, the mental, you called it grooming, but the the mental uh, disassociation that we are allowing children to go through uh, set, sets up a process for further and further dissociation from their natural embodied forms. And, and it also, because of the way that it's set up, we all have to participate in that. And so we all start to become disassociated from our bodies and from our physical forms. So Absolutely. it's not just an isolated thing. This this one uh, language game uh, cascades. Can, can one second? I have to deal with. Of course. Sorry. There we go. Yeah. So yeah, um. So when we said uh, at the very beginning, when you said that you were uh, part of your stuff is birth and being embodied and, and having, uh, you said something like a village, you use the village prenatal activity. Now you're, you're dealing a lot with the trans issue you said, or, or, and you mentioned also liberal feminism. What, what's your basic um, position then? What, what are you uh, going for? What are you standing for in that domain? 
so um, I have a pretty hard line approach these days. I, I really, I, I really <laughs> have strong boundaries in that I, I refuse to use preferred pronouns or mandated pronouns and, and whatnot. So, um, what I was kind of coming to with these kind of discoveries of like the history of hormonal birth control and how this actually isn't, you know, in my mind, the, the, uh, the ticket, uh, for women's liberation and then, you know, normalizing abuse in birth and then stepping away from that. And, and actually, you know, now I, I serve women who are birthing autonomously, um, without the presence of medical professional. And so I, I am a, a kind of a, a birth witness of sorts. Um, hmm. And those are women who, who, who very distinctly do not want um, any kind of medical authority present, um, who have either had prior traumas in the system, um, including traumas with licensed home birth midwives, who are really an extension of the medical paradigm. Um, and so, yeah, there was a lot of like, I had to really contend with like, if I wanted to be a reformist and kind of like work to improve the system, or if I wanted to step out completely and put energy towards something new. And, um, and that was modeled to me by uh, a dear friend of mine named Emily Saldea, and she runs a company called the Free Birth Society. And and so that was my kind of like, whoa, like there are other women doing this and this is incredible. And like, look at this, look at how much energy and like frustration and anger I have towards trying to fix something that, you know, I am completely powerless in, you know, being a doula in a hospital room, you are like scum. I mean, and it's, it's funny because like the whole framework around that is that we're advocates and that we like make a difference. But the truth is they, they wouldn't be letting doulas in if we were a threat to the paradigm. Mm -hmm. Right. Or, or a, uh, impedance to, mm -hmm. uh, the process. Yeah. 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 And, and I, and the, the, the times that I really stepped out of that, like good girl, do what the doctor's telling your client to do kind of thing, go along with everything. I was physically uh, removed from yeah. the birthing room. You know, like that's what happens when you put your body, you know, between a, a doctor and a woman, you know? So, hmm. and that didn't result in, in anything good, you know, but you know, it's like my, my clients would be like, well, why won't you come? And it's like, well, you don't really want me there. You know, <laughs> you, you, you're looking for a, a girl who's going to appease the staff and, and I'm okay. not that anymore. Um, so do in this free birthing movement, uh, what, what do you call the, this, uh, activity of, uh, there was a particular phrase about natural birthing or, or birthing outside of a hospital. Uh, yeah. So, so what's it called again? So some women will call it free birthing. Other women okay. will call it, you know, autonomous birth, um, yeah. birth outside the system. Yeah. Do you incorporate, uh, knowledge from the science and the medical industry and, and, uh, kind of adapt it to a, uh, more, uh, holistic, attenuated to the moment, uh, process of dualistship. What do you do without, in, in this autonomous birthing? What, what is that comprised of? So, so there is some like educational aspect to it. Um, 
you know, talking about the kind of hormones that are at play in the birth, how important it is to feel safe in the birth for the body to be able to relax and open, um, how light, you know, impedes the birth process, how the body has a, a, a neurological reaction to, to, to bright lights, um, you know, also just disrupts our circadian rhythm, you know, to be exposed to, to light at night and, and whatnot. So our body has a, you know, our body knows what light is and when we're supposed to have it. And, you know, in a kind of industrialized world, we, that's all kind of mixed up. And so, um, mm. it's funny because when you think about the hospital, it's like, bright light, central, fluorescence, you know, there's even one light in particular, Benjamin, it comes from the ceiling right before the woman, woman gives birth. It comes from the ceiling, it comes down and it shines directly on her vulva. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Only for the convenience of the staff who believe that their presence at her birth is essential to humanity. Okay. Right? There was a belief that, like, without them, then humanity would just cease to exist. So, so there's, um, yeah. It, it seems like you need that expertise in certain situations, not in every situation, i.e. the uh, umbilical cords around, like, any sort of complication. Like, there are extringencies where that's where it should happen or, or under those conditions is the best, most safest process, but not every uh situation i mean are there affordances for that or is it sure. always and ever uh not wrong sure no 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 no. i absolutely think there are affordances for that you know it's interesting that you say the cord around the neck that's actually a quite common occurrence that is not threatening uh to the baby oh, okay. but but things like things like you know placental abruption which would you know there would be warning signs things like that where a woman okay. is bleeding profusely you know uh before she gives birth so so you know the the shift is not that then I'm telling the women that I'm supporting when to go to the hospital or when not to go. My role in that is to trust their authority completely. Okay. Okay. And so I'm only working with women who are taking full responsibility for their births, including the outcome. Okay. Okay. And that's not something that we're like told to even like, you know, I, I was socialized to say like, well, well, that's dangerous. Or like, how would a woman know if she was in danger? Right. Hmm. Um, because we're socialized to kind of always defer to a provider, defer to authority to um, kind of ask for validation um, or approval to do X, Y and Z. And so um, I'm not in that space saying, you know, these are the reasons to go and these are the reasons not to go. Um, certainly I have my bias and certainly I have my experience that, that, you know, they, they, they are inviting in, uh, to the space because I have witnessed a lot of birth, but, hmm. um, but yeah, the, the shift there is that, um, those women who are hiring me are, are looking for a woman who is not going to undermine their authority. Okay. Yeah. And it, it, it's interesting to wonder about liability issues and, and the entire legal framework of uh, should something happen under those conditions, who is liable? In, in a hospital situation, the hospital is liable. So you're ceding authority, but you're also ceding liability. You can mm -hmm. hold these people responsible if, the, if something goes wrong. So it, there's a network of uh, – a bunch of frameworks that overlap in that that uh, I, I bet are kind of interesting to suss out. 
Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And it, it, it varies state by state, you know, where I practice now, it, you know, I don't even say practice, but again, I'm, I'm really a, a sister to these women. I'm a birth mm-hmm. witness. I am, um, I don't come with like tools and, you know, like I'm, I'm not a midwife, um, oh, okay. in that, in that sense, I'm not a licensed midwife. Um, and there's complete transparency and clarity. And that is why they are hiring me okay. because I am not a midwife, if that makes sense. So you uh, are you're a counselor then? Uh, what 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 are you doing uh, then? Uh, and at I asked that uh, not in a judgmental, but yeah, like in a curious way. Yeah, yeah. So so at the actual birth, um, it's a process of holding space, uh, making sure the woman is eating, going to the bathroom, staying hydrated, um, doing any kind of emotional support. Um, should she have some kind of block or any fears come up, I'm there to kind of um, reassure her that that she is wonderful and amazing and and beautiful, and also to anticipate her needs um, in terms of comfort. You know, uh, making sure the birth pool is ready and making sure she um, is getting enough massage, and also hmm. like leaving her the the fuck alone. <laughs> you know, is like really a skill to master, you know, you know, I have women who, who, who say, you know, I, I don't want to see you, but I want to know you're in the kitchen yes. making bone broth yeah. and tending to my children. Yes. Right. Okay. You know, huh. so, so there's, again, there's, um, my support is not conditional right now. Now there's a, a, a kind of agreement that we come to, to make sure we're a good fit before, before I'm actually at the birth. But um, you know, when I first started serving women in this way, uh, uh, a woman who now has become a good friend said to me, you know, just so you know, I might ask you to leave. Are you okay with that? And I was like, yes, yes. Like women asking for what they want, you know, and this has happened to me in a hospital birth once where the woman like slammed the door in my face, you know, to the bathroom. And I was like, right on, you know, finally she's like, she's like, doing what she wants to do instead of trying to make everyone else comfortable. Yeah. 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 That, that, um, ability to serve is, uh, natural in some people, but it it takes a while to cultivate. And also the ability to shut off the ability to serve is, uh, another, uh, talent that some people have and some people have to cultivate and the expectations of women being uh the server uh of the family of the world uh and being the server of the the human being that's coming out of them into the world and servicing in that them in that way uh it's a it's an interesting framework to contend with and and to also master and to also i suppose honor in our society and and respect uh all the way down and up. So your conception of woman is fascinating in a way. And I don't mean that to be derogatory because you are building the, your understanding of woman from this, or you have built because you paid so much attention, your understanding of what a woman is and, and how a woman, uh, becomes and and does this process through the process of of actual birth, which is not something that we can run away with without sacrificing our our lives as human beings. So it, 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 your center of mass or the the concept of woman for you has a, uh, has a very specific or a very interesting, powerful center of mass because it's uh, involved your involvement and your studies and your work is based on this process of birth. 
Yeah. Yeah. And I, th- I think there's something about just not being able to hmm. deny like the truth of birth. You know, there's no pretending like it's something, you know, I always say there's no room for apathy in birth. You know, you really it's it's something that is so grounding and so sobering. Um, And the idea that in such a kind of point of truth of humanity, that one would be asked to lie or pretend really astounds me. Um, And yeah, and to deny that that process um, or to include men in that process, even linguistically, is 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 totally um, weird. It's weird. And it's and I, you know, I, (laughs) I I, uh, do, you you know, Alex Aaron, the the gender offender mapper she's fantastic (laughs) no i don't think i i know her she's pretty cool um she 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 was like you know she said to me it's it's straight up abusive to take these like young i was 24 for my dual the training you know to take these really eager young women who who want to do good who want to serve women you know to to kind of indoctrinate them in this way to say like you won't have a client base unless you agree to the new lexicon, mm-hmm. you know, which was what was like implicit in, in the whole training. Yeah. Yeah. It's you know? taking advantage of, uh, of so much goodwill. Uh, the, the people who want to get into doing this and helping women them and then taking advantage of them or imprinting on them, this ideology that is not just, questionable uh, logically linguistically but it comes backed up with so much threat of if you violate this we will kick you out of society there's if we can decouple the conversation between uh, trans rights and the enforcement of them uh, then we can kind of deal with it on its own terms and and suss it out but that it comes with so much uh uh, threat like like there's a bunch of loaded guns behind this if you don't go along with this and it and, and it stills in that that if people violate this they're harming people uh, so so there's a lot of uh, there's a lot of bad uh, or or there's a lot of tricks inside of it that are, that are very abusive it, it it's gaslighting it, it it's threatening it, it's it, it there's a lot of part of it where you're like this is just like a abusive relationship in a lot of way in a lot of it tactics so it it trans ideology uh there's there's trans rights there's actual uh people that you can quantify and that that have good motives that that want to live their lives in a certain way and they can they should be understood and protected but around them is that activism that that has to be stand stood against because of the outcomes that it's blocking us from seeing because of the way that it's sweeping up children into lifelong medicalization and that you can't question it without being uh, seen as a bigot or a phobe of some sort it's just it's beyond the pale and that's not correct that's not a way that you get rights to threaten people that way and it's like they have millions of dollars in backing well at least millions yeah 
Yeah, I mean, that might even it, be an understatement. <laughs> my, I think, I think the projection, the, the 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 projection for just the sex reassignment industry alone will be 1.5 billion by 2026. That they're uh, making. That they're making, yeah, globally. Okay. And that's okay. just sex reassignment. That doesn't include the trans modeling agencies, the books, the clothing lines, the makeup. Like it, it, yeah. it doesn't even include any of that stuff. So. It, it's like, what else? I mean, I mean, what else do they want? I mean, it's it's like this again. This narrative that it's just the disenfranchised, oppressed. You know, like absolutely, gender nonconforming people are targeted, right, and attacked. You know, I mean, I mean, Buck Angel, you know, says, you know, she says this, you know, that that she was, you know, brutalized as a butch lesbian. Right. Like dragged in the streets. Right. You know, and then yeah. and then she, you know, now passes as a, as a man in some respects. But, you know, it, it's like we, we, we know we can hold the truth that that gender nonconforming people are, are targeted and, and brutalized um, and that, you know, that is that isn't justification to then like uh, move into this whole twisted mental gymnastics ideology where where men and women are are like are interchangeable yeah just bodies that birth or or ejaculate kind of thing <laughs> we don't have to yeah we don't have to sacrifice the normal to uh to make room for people that don't fit in the normal what are some of the things that you had to sacrifice or once you started getting peaking and uh and decided that you couldn't stand or go along or accept this. What are some of the sacrifices that you had to contend with or fears? Um, well, I was kind of publicly scolded by my doula training, not even for the trans stuff, but for kind of um, being uncomfortable with the term belly birth. Kind of a use what's, of, a, uh, a it's a euphemism. <laughs> for seats. <It's> <laughs> It's a euphemism for a C-section. Yeah. Kind of what we were talking about earlier with like, you know, kind of romanticizing a major abdominal surgery, which like only benefits pharmaceutical companies. You know, it's like not for women to call it belly birth. It's like insulting um, in my in my perspective. But so I was publicly scolded from that organization. And I I I lost um, a lot of friends, almost all of them. Um, that I grew up with, like, like sisters, I'm not talking about adult friends, I'm talking about like long term sisters. And um, that, yeah, I mean, that was starting to unravel just from my critique of hormonal birth control. I I was really starting to get confronted and um, by friends saying, like, how could you say this? Um, How could you denounce Planned Parenthood? Um, Things like that. So I think the trans stuff was just kind of the the cherry on top. Um, So yeah. So it I've seems had, like the, the trans issue is kind of uh, downstream of your uh, pursuit of defending and extending the understanding of the natural processes of being a woman and everything that's involved in the reproductive life of women. Yeah. And also like agency, you know, I think I think more so than I think I think a lot of my friends could understand that, like, you know, taking synthetic hormones is probably not the best thing. But as soon as I started to talk about like larger systems, um, the, it got a little bit like, oh, well, well, 
you know, kind of the whole liberal feminism like tenets are that like we're individuals making choices, like we are free to make choices. And, okay. you know, as I became radicalized, I, I came to see that like I don't that's not how I see the world. Um, I, I don't really, you know, believe that that women specifically are, are making that many choices because of, um, you know, the pharmaceutical industry and, and they're being sexism. conditioned to yeah. uh, frame the world as uh, such when yeah. there's, you, you, you began to question, well, at what point were you uh, taught to make that choice or you're by radical, you mean you're tracing the roots of choice. Uh, to uh, social conditioning. Is that fair to say? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. And I I, I still experience like a resistance um, when talking about this stuff sometimes with just, it's really scary to like, having gone through most of your life thinking you're a free agent to then be like, oh, well, if I look at this, then I have to look at all these other things because none of these things like trans ideology, I don't think can be looked at in a vacuum, you know, to question trans ideology is to question, um, pornography and prostitution and, um, hmm. even the race debate, you know, like it, it kind of, for me, it, it really isn't just one thing. And so I think by hmm. like starting these conversations and wanting to kind of like go and show where I was at in my process, you know, I, I experienced a lot of resistance too. I mean, even if you take hormonal birth control, you know, I had a, I had a, you know, I've had friends who have gone on hormonal birth control because their partners don't like condoms. Mm-hmm. So the problem is that they can't have sex and the partner can't, you know, have an erection because he has to use condoms so then the solution is for the woman to take a synthetic hormone, which yeah. we know impedes her libido. Yeah. You know, yeah. and it's like to hold the truth that hormonal birth control is dangerous would be to like potentially um, lose a re- like re- like a relationship, you know, like these, these again, it's like nothing is in a vacuum. And, and so I think like that, I, I really, I don't know why, but I haven't had an issue just kind of shedding just being like, what's next? Bring it on. You know, like what else don't, <laughs> don't I know? You know, like I, I thrive in that space. And I, and I, as I, as I kind of went through that and I'm constantly still going through that, um, it's become clear to me the kind of amount of resistance there is to, to kind of, um, considering that we might not be as like free agents as, you know, we're kind of yeah, groomed to, yeah. to believe. I wonder, it, it brings into question, um, if, Condoms aren't good for the man. Hormones aren't good for the woman. Uh, why not deal with the consequences of having sex, which is pregnancy and birth, and, and then erecting social structures that ensure that men and women maintain the responsibility for their choice of having sex? I, ultimately, the, there's a, a trad. It's called trad uh, uh, answer to that conundrum, which is to uh, foster uh, monogamy as a value in society it seems like that would be a path i'm wondering what do you think of that and is that appealing in certain ways to to form a a society that's responsible for reproduction uh, as a consequence to sexual activity well i I hear where you're going with that and and i and i would say there's another option um which is um teaching natural family planning, also called fertility awareness method in schools, which is um, uh, a scientific approach 
to Mm -hmm. achieving and also preventing pregnancy without the use of pharmaceutical drugs. Okay. Okay. And so it's been rebranded in the past, you know, I'd say like two decades to be called fertility awareness method, but it is really, it's been, you know, most of the research around this method. Exactly, fam. Okay. (laughs) Exactly, fam. Uh, You know, most of the research behind fam is from the Catholic church. Okay. Yeah. It, right? it, I, I heard the language you said family planning. Like, so there mm-hmm. is the concept of mm-hmm. the family. So if, if you, if you separate sex from the family, then you have these, these uh, birth control thing. You have liberal feminism of that. I, I just, I, I hear mm-hmm. what, what's the other option then? And, and how mm-hmm. do you foster uh, responsibility within the man and the woman for the consequences of that? And so the family or the concept of the family is right there. Yeah, yeah, totally. It's like, but, but the, the, you know, so, so that, so that method can be used within like a monogamous relationship, certainly. And it can be used with a woman who, who has multiple partners. Um, and you know, it's, it's beautiful when the man, the partner can be involved, um, in that maybe she's taking her temp every morning and he's recording it on the side table. And like, that's cool. (laughs) You know, there, there are all these apps that will synthesize, not, not that are birth control, but, um, who will basically is like a digital version of, of the paper chart. So like I've, I've, I've had friends who, um, will like export their charts and send them to their partners so that the partners know when they're in their fertile window versus not in their fertile window and, yeah. and things like that. So, yeah. you know, is it, it, is it accurate? It's been uh, ridiculed as inaccurate. So it's, it's very, yeah, I think, I think the rain, it depends on, so fertility awareness refers to fertility awareness method is kind of a blanket term for a bunch of different methodologies. And so each one has a kind of a different, um, efficacy rate for perfect use and typical use. So, um, in the method that I was practicing, um, which, which closely resembles like, um, the sense of plan method, um, was, I, I believe like 99.6%, uh, perfect use. So Hmm. pretty good. Uh, yeah. Probably uh, comparable to uh, birth control then, because yeah. birth control is not 100%. I right. mean, uh, no synthetic. Uh, okay. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. And and yeah, it's important to remember that, like, you know, no, no birth control method is 100%. And I've supported a number of women who have gotten pregnant on IUDs as well, yeah. you know? Yeah. So, I think abstinence abstinence is probably one in a uh, few billion. Uh, I mean, accepting Jesus is the, probably the only <laughs> abstinent birth, but... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, if we could just mandate that, that would, yeah, perfect. Immaculate Done conception deal. only. <laughs> Done deal. Oh my gosh. Yeah. So but, where where are you headed now? You um and what what kind of what what's your what's your current project right now that people can check out um online or or see your courses and and where are you headed from that? Yeah. So um, after I got kicked out of the fertility awareness training for oh wait. Yeah. You got kicked out of the family? Do you have have another five hours? (laughs) Oh, no, I don't. (laughs) I'm sorry, but I have about 20 minutes and I have to run off to work. Totally get it. Um, (laughs) You're just a controversial figure, aren't you? I I was joking, partially. Um, (laughs) No, but but I also have a call. Uh, Not in 20 minutes, but in in 45. Um, But so... Yeah. So I got kicked out of the fam training. I was already a radical feminist. I I emailed the head of the program um, and was like, hey, this is what I'm about. 
let me know if you erase women. If you do, I'd like to know now, you know, kind of thing. And she was like, oh, no, no, no. Like, I hold space for, like, everyone. And that should have been my... That should have been my red flag. But, you know, I, it was a two-year teacher training that I had been looking forward to. I had actually pl- applied the year before, not gotten in. And so it was like this long journey of like, oh, my God, it's starting and wonderful. And I'm going to get all this knowledge and, you know, uh, deepen my knowledge and, and whatnot for sharing this natural family planning method with with all these women. Um, to offer, like, finally just be like, no, 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 they're, 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 this is the solution, right? This is one one way to go. So, uh I just, I kept using the word woman and mother. Um, the first module was the gender unicorn, uh, total indoctrination, oh. trans ideology. So, so in the beginning, constantly, the pattern is in the beginning, before you get to the facts, you have to adopt this ideology. Yep. It's put right in the front yep. of reproductive health of females. They have to adopt trans ideology before they can get to the reality of woman. In program after program. Pretty yeah. astounding. Yeah. Yeah. And, and this woman, this the head of this program would constantly self-censor. She'd be like, women, oh gosh, I'm so sorry, everyone. I'm, I'm really working on it and I'm getting better. But, um, you know, and then she would say to me privately, you know, I, I really I resonate with some of the things that you're sharing. Like, I also worry about little boys being castrated, you know, and then, but then totally would, would just kind of concede Cognitive to the dissonance. mob. Yeah. Wow. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, yeah it, you know, and, and so it, it got worse and worse and we would have private talks and like, I mean, I'm not kidding, like I would be giving a presentation on like my assignment of like, you know, whatever, and be saying women, women, and the and this was all a virtual training. So I would see the women on the screens just being like, visibly upset. And so this, this kind of, it all led up to this, there was a lot of tension brewing and women were writing her saying that they didn't feel safe in the program because of my critique of the gender unicorn and my stance. And I wasn't alone. I had a, had an ally in the group and then a silent ally. So, uh, it's so weird. Like, yeah. I, I'm sorry to distract, like the terminology, I don't feel safe for somebody having a different, like, like this ideology, it's so threatening and it's so frail at the same time. It, it's just a nest of contradictions. It's just and a total nest of contradictions it's and manipulation. Ridiculous. You know, you know, I had this thought too, Benjamin, like, have these women never experienced real violence that, that they can't distinguish between someone who's 5'1", 110 pounds, like, five states away in a virtual space <laughs> thinking that I'm unsafe and could like yeah. harm them. Like what, in what reality? I mean, yeah. kudos to them for having never experienced real violence, but like, yeah. that's crazy shit. But so, so, wow. So the teacher was very much like a, trying to be the peacemaker and like trying to find a win for all. So yeah. she decided to schedule a gender forum in which she oh. said she was hiring a moderator. No, I'm sorry. She said an expert. Okay. Yeah. And so that whatever was that idea. means in this uh, particular uh, domain, which just means an ideologue, basically a demagogue that comes in and, and lays down the law. It was that, am I incorrect? Am I inaccurate? You are spot on. 96%. Better than an IUD? Was I, was I? (laughs) (laughs) Higher efficacy. Perfect use. Um, She was, uh, she was a trans rights ally. Yeah, totally. Um, And, 
it basically amounted into, I mean, so basically as soon as I started to speak, women started to cry. They started to shake. They started to cry. They start one, one woman, the one woman in the program who went by she, her, and he, him, uh, said, you know, it's really hard for me to be here. And she was the one kind of shaking and crying. And then the, the, the expert challenged me to a role play and I accepted. Okay. Okay. So during this role play, um, she was uh, a man who identifies as a woman asking to be included in my women's circle. Okay. And so it basically was, um, but Isabella, you know, I, I would really appreciate it if you would let me into your circle. You know, um, I, I really, you know, I'm working through a lot right now and I could really use the community and support. And I would just say, and then, you know, my response was like, at one point, then she started to get really jazzed up and was like, I want to kill myself. And I was like, I, I basically just said, your mental health is not my responsibility. This is a group for women. And I'm really sorry to hear you're going through a hard time and I have empathy for that. And I, I am not giving you permission to come into this space. And then it was just over. It was like dead silence. It was the end of the call. And wow. um, it was just, I got an email right after you're, you're out of the program. Um, sorry, we couldn't make it work. Um, I wrote her an earful uh, reply. We only want women who will be penetrated at the will of uh, people who cry in the right way. Wow. 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 The, the, the sacredness, and I, I know that, that term's loaded, but the women are a sacred category to me. It's just, it's a sacred category to me because of because of the power of creating a human being is part of that. Uh, but there's other things about that too. Uh, my relationship with women throughout my life uh, has been essential to me even wanting to be alive. So th there's a lot of things, but the, the fact that it is under assault in very material, very direct ways, uh, linguistically, physically, uh, and, the, and then the, the conflation of what is violence uh, normalizes actual violence or makes actual violence less easy to deal with and to talk about because now somebody with a different opinion is just as violent as somebody with a raised fist. And the, people, and the person with the raised fist is not being violent. You're being violent for not giving them access to your space. It, it's a complete inversion of uh, so much that is good about our society and it erodes a lot of longstanding principles about how we respect one another. Uh, and it, it's refreshing that you're on the forefront of that, but it's also disheartening because people like you are being kicked out um, and are being marginalized. And so how are you speaking out at this point? So that, that experience like really catapulted me into exactly, you know, to doing what I'm doing now. I thought if, if I could lose all these friends and be kicked out of a fertility awareness program exclusively devoted to female physiology, like there, there's something here. This thing is way bigger than I thought. Like this goes beyond me not wanting to say birthing person. Like there's, there's something here. So basically what I, what I did is I started speaking out on Instagram and I shared this, this story of being kicked out of the fertility awareness program. Um, just totally uncensored, which was like so liberating after, you know, trying to like hide for 
for not very long. I mean, I, I'm not burning a good liar. the bra of ideology, right? In exactly, exactly, <laughs> exactly. Yeah, no more boob jail. No more boob jail. Um, and so I created a an eight week program uh, that is for women who are who are questioning the tenets of okay. liberal feminism. So not just trans ideology, but also looking into. Um, pornography, the whole like sex work is empowering uh, narrative that that comes with liberal feminism. And so um, it's a series of eight calls. And then I have experts um, give their testimonies. Um, I have an expert Hmm. who's a a former trans rights activist um, who who, uh, is part of the program. And so the women who take the eight week series get access to this um, information. And then also... uh, um, yeah, experts on surrogacy as well. Um, women and who surrogacy is the industry of, uh, I guess, uh, renting wombs, basically. Precisely. I, I don't mean to come down one side or the other, but from your yeah. perspective, it's basically uh, the yeah. shopping out of, of the reproductive uh, part of a stranger uh, to produce a child. Yeah, renting women, buying babies. Yeah, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. yeah, exactly. Yeah. And so that then evolved into a private virtual community as well. Um, you know, a lot of the women coming on these calls or signing up for the eight weeks have, have not uttered a word yeah. to anyone else, maybe aside from their partners, you know, who, who are even having like a bit of like whiplash, like coming into the space, kind of just so used to self-censoring that it's like unbelievable to be even in a virtual space with like 10 women um, speaking their truth about yeah, how they okay. feel, about how, you know, how trans ideology makes them feel in their bodies, like that it hurts them to see women who are cutting off their breasts. Like in no other space have they felt like they can say that. And and it's kind of, it's rippled. And so now those women are going into their communities, having conversations with their friends. And so, you know, I, I, hmm. I wish I had had more like hand-holding in my process um someone kind of holding me and saying like these are the harms and this is why like it's okay to have these thoughts and like here's here's some like material here's some material examples like even with prostitution for example just um Hmm. yeah so so kind of just also just untangling lifting the veil that is my my mission now um in the virtual realm and that's that's kind of where my online business has has taken me and so i just see the the online community expanding and we have um calls about three times a month we have one my favorite call is the practice using your voice call which is where we do role play inspired by my my role play experience um where i play the trans ally or the trans rights activist or the gender affirming therapist and you know because Mm. we have a lot of mothers in the group too now Um, not only with young children, but with, with teenage children as well, who are navigating, like, how do I, how do do I protect my kid from this predatory ideology? And so it's a lot of storytelling, um, a lot of brainstorming, uh, a lot of collaboration happening there. Are there forums that people can go to? Uh, Where can people find you? And the links I will include in the description of these, uh, this video and this podcast. Yeah, everything's on my website um, at whosebodyisit.com. And that is my handle on Instagram, Twitter. I have a YouTube channel as well that I've just started in the past few months. And Okay, great. Yeah. I'll, I'll send people over there. What's on your YouTube? 
right now? Uh, YouTube, I have interviews with um, detransitioned women. I have interviews with Mary Lou Singleton, uh, Courtney Cat Earth. Um, women who were really on the ground when the coup okay. happened specifically in the birth world. And my most recent okay. interview is with uh, Jennifer Bielik, uh, who writes, oh, great. Uh, who follows the money trail. Um, yeah. who I had the pleasure of meeting in New York actually last year. So, um, yeah, lots of good. <laughs> before the world ended. Yeah, yeah before the world <laughs> ended. Yeah. So exactly. it's basically a very uh, interview centric, uh, conversational uh, type YouTube channel. Excellent. Totally. There's a great need to that. There's that that form of uh, information sharing, though it co it forces people to be more patient, um, is actually uh, causes people to be more human uh, and understand uh, that information is actually included in, in a human experience and an embodied discussion is uh, actually how human beings have uh, passed wisdom on for generations in this Instagram, Twitter, which I love, uh, is, is actually... Uh, divergence from actual wisdom. Yeah, absolutely. And I think specifically in this, in this gender identity, trans ideology, radical feminism sphere, uh, it's really important for, for people to see our face and like our humanness that we're not these like e evil bigots behind some kind of animated figure. You know, there's, I mean, I understand the fear of not wanting to show your face and the real consequences of that. And, you know, it, I don't know, there's a, a kind of liberation when, when you do and, and people see like, whoa, she's, she's showing her face, okay, you know, <laughs> whatever. And, you know, all the women who paved the way before me too to be able to like even make that decision to like show my face and have my full name on the internet is, you know, as I know you can relate to is, uh, mm -hmm. is, isn't an easy thing. But yeah, it's, you know, like think of like Lear Keith and other radical feminists who have had to move and, you know, uproot their, their lives and their families um, for being villainized for, for this stuff. You know, I'm glad to say that, that like, I, I don't personally feel um, like victimized in that way. And I, I think that's because of the women who have come before me. So mm, mm, a lot of gratitude mm. there. Yeah. And you're uh, participating in the uh, encouraging uh, rather than empowering, because that's a fraught word, but the encouraging of women to, uh, and everybody, uh, men and women to, uh, to just be honest uh, online uh, about the reality and offline uh, about the realities of uh, what's going on with women. So thank you for reaching out. Thank you for coming on my channel. I will end the recording uh, now. Do you have uh, Do you have a goodbye, uh, like some sort of uh, patented uh, like handshake that you give the camera? <laughs> <laughs> a little dance that I choreograph? Yeah. Um, Sparkles. No, I don't. I don't. I, I'm just, yeah, really um, glad to be here. And, and thank you for, for um, having me on. Yeah, love the work that you're doing. Support the work that you're doing. And yeah, right on. Right on with you. And that's uh, the recording. Congratulations for reaching the end of the discussion. If you enjoyed it, do be sure to leave a review or a comment or a thumbs up or whatever you need to do to show that glorious algorithm that this is some good stuff. And do be sure to go and check that back catalog as it is brimming full of fantastic conversations. Links to provide monetary support are down there in the description as well. Have a good night.